Uh, welcome to the Anime Research Group. With so much anime produced each season, many interesting shows just slip through the cracks and don't get the fair hearing they deserve. I'm Ian. I'm Danny. I'm Freya. And each week, we get together to give one show its chance. Watching the first few episodes, and then discussing what we think of it, and what topics the show brings up. And this week, we turn our attention to Ghost Hand, a 2007 anime based on an idea by Masamune Shiro. The anime was made by Production IG. It ran for 22 episodes from October 18th, 2007 until April 3rd, 2008. It was, as Ian said, an original idea by Masamune Shiro. However, while he originally conceived of it in 1987, it did not debut until Production IG's 20th anniversary project. The two, the company and Shiro, generally seem to be working fairly closely together as evidenced by their probably biggest and most well-known creation, Ghost in the Shell. It was directed by Ryotaro Nakamura and written by Chiaki J. Kanaka, and I think Freya has a lot to say about both of them. Yes. For once, this week we have two relatively well-known people, by anime standards at least. Ryotaro Nakamura, most famous for uh, the two... I suppose you could call them cult classics, uh, Serial Experiments Lane and um, Kino's Journey. But I was surprised to find out he's actually done what he's got quite a varied body of work. Mm. Um, so he started off as an animator under uh, Osamu Dezaki, as a lot of people did. But his first few uh, dict- uh, directorial uh, works were. Um, Adaptations of uh, Kenji Miyazawa novels aimed at children. Well, he was the director on the show that only I seem to have watched for Wreck. Yes, Wreck. Um, but the like, manga. <laughs> but uh, more interesting for me is the fact that he worked on the storyboard for They Were Eleven, uh, yes. which we talked a bit about before. Uh, less illustriously, he made the um, the short comedy, colourful, which I have not heard good things about. His last film, before he unfortunately passed away, was <laughs> an adaptation of a Jules Verne novel. Oh, which one? Uh, Two Years Vacation. Huh. Don't actually think I've read that one. I'm so angry that Despera never gets to be a thing. Yes. And, yes, as Ian said, uh, he was working on uh, Despera with our uh, writer from this week, uh, but that's never going to happen now. Um, what can I say about him? I mean, I mean, one thing we'll talk about a bit later is the he's like a good director, right? Which yeah, uh, pretty yeah, much. we all we all enjoyed the direction in this. So in in that he actually like does like take advantage of a large repertoire of like techniques. There's very much like a standard way to direct well anything in 2019. <laughs> yeah, I, I can definitely say he was never limited to just one style, which is. Uh... Honestly, I was kind of surprised to learn that Kino and Lane were directed by the same guy, despite them having a similar color palette. He's also someone who values sound a lot. Yes. <laughs> Which should be obvious. On that note, we should probably thank Yoto Tsuroka, who was the Again, guy who actually did the sound for this show. Who also, who we have mentioned before, because he did the sound for uh, Boogie Pop Phantom, unsurprisingly. Yeah, and Kino, and presumably and... all the other shows we mentioned. And Serial Experiments Lane, and all of Monogatari, and lots of other things. Sound directors get around in this industry. Now, do you want to start the Chiaki J. Kanaka cast now, or do you want to <laughs> wait to keep that until later? No, we can talk about him now. <laughs> so, Chiaki J. Kanaka, probably the third most famous anime writer, um, and there's a very big gap between him and the the two most famous. <laughs> Would you like to to, na- to to name the order of the top uh, three, then? Well, one is definitely Gena Rabucci. Um, yeah. And two is Mario Kada. And then all the way down here, we have Chiaki Jekinaka, I think. Like, I like to think of him as, like, the... as, like, where Makoto Shinkai was in terms of directing, like, a few years ago. It was just, like, there's the, like... There's the steady cult of people who are really into Chiaki Jekinaka. <laughs> and then he just needs that like one huge breakthrough thing to like make him good. Uh, yes. 
It's funny because uh, Kanaka as well is somebody who's uh, got quite a varied body of work. We go from Devil Lady to the old Helsing to Digimon Tamers, uh, Giant Robo. That's Digimon. And, <laughs> yes. Uh, Magic Users Club and then the more the things he'd be more well known for, like Lane and Textilize. And he wrote episodes for Princess Tutu and Mononoke. Yeah, he gets around in the uh, pretentious bullshit uh, section of anime, which is my section. So I, I, even though I can't say I uh, like everything he's done, it's always interesting. I mean, I, I have very little to say about Chiaki J. Kanaka besides the fact that uh, I think I've seen like all of the original five seasons of Digimon more than once. And mm. I think it is widely agreed among the Digimon them that while everybody has their preferred season just plot wise and thematically digimon tamers was the most interesting uh, thought-provoking and digimon tamers was not was aimed at a little bit more of a mature audience than the previous two digimon seasons like you could enjoy it just as much as a teenager than you could have as a as a younger child which is what the first two seasons were primarily aimed at yeah i think the only thing that like probably is worth mentioning that we didn't he would consider this his favorite screenwriting project. Yes. yes. Which is interesting. He he likes to write shows about um, mental health, which is funny because I don't think he always has the uh, the best depiction of it, but there you go. He wants to do it from a particular take, Yes, which might not be the healthiest take, but yeah. I mm. like to watch it. Regardless. Same. Yeah. I mean, at least it's interesting. At least it's not generic, as you've already said, Freya. Yeah. It's, I, I'd much rather watch something that's heavily flawed but interesting than another generic show. I think heavily flawed but interesting uh, sums up Textilized perfectly. Man, that's a show I need to watch again. I mean, just put it up on a future episode. Okay. You know how um, the first episode of this didn't have dialogue for like five minutes? Yeah. I think the first episode of Textilize has three lines of dialogue in the whole Ooh. thing. <laughs> well, that's certainly something. Yeah, so with that, it's probably a good idea to briefly go over three episodes, which are the ones we watched, mm. and try and cover kind of what happened, which is actually kind of more difficult for this show than I think a lot of the other things. Because, I mean, how do I want to say this? It's I, I don't want to say that it's not plot-driven, but it's very much um, like an impressionistic or like sort of thematic depiction of what it's trying to do, rather than a like, let's go, let's go shoot some bad guys. Uh, I mean, but first, we need to get the magic gun to do that. Um, yes, it's a slow, uh, slow burn mystery, which is more about exploring the characters. I'm doing the end bit at the beginning. I'm an idiot. So with the first episode, like we, the first thing you sort of get is sort of flashbacks um, with his, with the sort of no dialogue, just sort of going heavy on the soundscape, uh, and you just get to see depictions of what are, we we take to be scenes from his memories or from his dreams. Uh, uh, by him, I mean the protagonist um, of this show. Taro Komori. Um, Taro Komori, uh, voiced by Kensho way. Uh, probably best known in Japan as the voice of Harry Potter, but we would know him as uh, Giorno Giovanni from Jojo. Kuroko from Kuroko Basket. So he's been having... He's been delighted like, a lot of stuff. Yes. Yeah. This is a much more reserved role than uh, either of those. Yes. It, definitely. When we first when we first serve see uh, Taro, he's like talking into like he's kind of just like awoken from this sort of dreamlike state and is just recording his impressions. Of we get like a little bit of an introduction to his family through a classic Lane style awkward dinner scene. Anime has so many awkward dinners. You you can't have a non awkward dinner scene with Gendo Ikari. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And it's clear that there's some sort of like tension going in the background. Like it's not going to be, it's not a business that they think he's going to like stick around uh, when he gets older. It also leads into the other big drama point at the big mystery of the season, which is 
Taro's uh, kidnapping 11 years prior, where he and his sister got abducted by some unknown man, but his sister died uh, while he managed to come back alive, which is still a sore point for clearly for his family and himself. I don't think they like um, say that through exposition to episode two, right? Uh, I think I think that's correct. What the um, kidnapping? I thought it was. I mean, you can figure it out obviously from the visual language or whatever, but it's not like said explicitly until episode two. Yeah, and like the next thing we get is him going. Um, it definitely seems like he doesn't go to school quite as often as yes. a person is required to go to school as. Uh, but as he like arrives at the classroom, uh, we see someone in a very unusual uniform for the school. It's more of like a tan, whereas everyone else is wearing black. And he's like looking interestedly at the main character. This is uh, Masayuki Nakajima, who is like new to the school. Yes, we'll have lots to say about him. But right now, it's it's just the classic. They walk past and they're like, "Oh, this person's interesting," because the camera lingered, on and they seem interested in them. Um, and then everyone is sort of getting all excited because a third main character, who is this sort of delinquent character, uh, Makoto Ogami has also decided to go to school. Big day for all the people who don't usually show up to this school. <laughs> uh, in classic first episode style. Taro is not a very attentive person. He has problems staying awake in class. He gets like these weird dreams, which is when we realize that the things we saw at the start with these sort of ghostly eyes appearing uh, are him. And he like goes up through the and out of his body and then out and starts floating through uh like the roads in the in the country area. The first episode is also aptly named Lucid Dream. Yes. And that'll give us time to see a little bit more of the traumatic experiences, like when there's this sort of dark giant uh locking him in some sort of underground container which seems to be like a, a trauma point relating to the uh, kidnapping. Mm. We also very briefly see our uh, thir- our final protagonist, um, Miyako uh, Komagusu, who's um, we don't see a lot of in this episode. We see her twice, I think, once while she's walking up the stairs to the temple where she lives. And she once... stares at the um, thingy. Yes, once where we... So far, she's the only one that's exhibited any kind of supernatural ability with her ability to see ghosts or whatever they may be, which is only further reinforced in the next two episodes. Yeah, so after the class end, Taro is informed that like he has to go and see the principal, which will be to do with uh, his therapy sessions with the school's therapist. But he gets like caught halfway, and we, bet- before arriving there, and Masayuki like, stops to be Hey, hey, you're Taro, aren't you? You're the guy who got kidnapped. Eh, eh, eh. <laughs> Thus, showing us that he's going to be obnoxious for the next however many episodes. Yes. Yep. Now, so we have a few minutes of him just talking with the with the new therapist. He seems to be somewhat guarded in what he says to them, like only revealing certain experiences. Like he, like the dreams are known, and then I guess the sort of final thing that happens in the episode are. Masayuki ma- messing, like showing a bit of interest also in Makoto uh, and his uh, situation. Uh, Makoto's father killed himself about the time of the kidnapping in suspicious circumstances. So, in terms of like anime first episodes, this was definitely the slow burn. But definitely a very intriguing slow burn. Like, yes. It's set up, it's set up. Through the flashbacks, through a very, very well, uh, great sound, soundscape, which we'll be discussing in a little bit more detail later. Uh, it's set up an intriguing mystery of what the hell happened. Uh, it's created three distinct characters, visually at least, uh, both Nakamura and 
Kanaka have very good things to say in various interviews about Mariko Oka, who was the character designer of the show. They said she was instrumental to creating um, like these kind of soft, almost generic characters. They would they had they would have an issue with because a lot of their other shows had very standard characters. Where so they wanted to have very simplistic characters, and I think Ian mentioned that as well while we were watching the show in. And, uh, and how they all have very simplified designs with very simple eyes. Shout out to her. She did a really good job of making simple but uh, distinctive. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's like, there's no need to have like turquoise hair uh, done in like spiked twin tails or whatever people do these days. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but. <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that, but everyone has like brown or black hair. The people are wearing school uniforms for the most part. And, um, like, one of the things I noticed was, like, the eyes are dramatically simpler than a lot of anime eyes. They look more like just colored marbles stuck in their face. I I think it helps that, like, Masayuki being the new person stands out. I mean, most we don't really know a lot about each character yet, uh, personality-wise. They're fairly muted, which makes Mm -hmm. sense because they're all, a lot of them are suppressing uh, big traumas. The only one we we that has a an expressive personality is Masayuki, and he's mostly just a huge dick. Yeah, because he goes up to people and is like, "Hey, remember your trauma? Hey, 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 listen." It's, uh, <laughs> it's the classic uh, people uh, expressing their trauma differently. Yeah. So yeah, we mentioned that the first uh, anime, uh, the, the first episode was called uh, "Lucid Dream." And this is uh, something they do with every episode. One thing that I didn't really think about while we were doing this, but that I don't know if any of you have anything to say about, is that I'm really reminded of like the start of Shinseka Yoru. Yes. Um, no, no, I had that thought as well during the yeah. first episode. I think there's, I, I think like this is the right way to do mystery. Is there's a temptation to like hint it too much. Mm. Um, whereas all you need is like one or two things and to like barely mention them. <laughs> and if you just uh, present the world as is, um, and let the, the directing and the sound and the, what's the word I'm looking for? The atmosphere, uh, hook people, then it tends to work better. Like it's definitely managed to create an atmosphere. Um, Twin Peaks was a very heavy inspiration for the series. Yes. <laughs> Combination of the rural countryside with a supernatural extrasensory world. And it's all based around a uh, a death years ago. Yes, a death years ago, when people confronting their trauma. Like, they've definitely managed to recreate that atmosphere. We even joked about how the town looks like every other rural Japanese town you've ever seen <laughs> in anime, which might sometimes, might, could be seen in certain ways as a detractor, but here it just adds to the strength to the to the banality and normality of the world, just because it is so normal, any kind of supernatural encounters we have during these episodes and presumably later on will stand out even more. Um, Ian, I'm not sure if I'm just like uh, overthinking it, but I think uh, Taro at least had a um, had an unusual dialect, or at least it sounded like he did. Uh, no, no, that's definitely a, a thing. Sorry, sorry that if I'm taking this, but uh, I read in interviews that they were very happy to deliberately put heavy dialects into the show. Okay, I thought so because Ma- Masayuki's voice really well stood out as a normal yeah, anime yeah. voice because unfortunately everyone's from Tokyo. Um, the town is Suten in a desolate uh, desolate region in the island of Kyushu. Yeah, okay. yeah. So they all have a Kyushu dialect. Yeah. So well, Den- Denny's already answered it. Yeah, that's good. One of the things we mentioned uh, before was that the first episode was Lucid Dream, and this definitely seems to be like, uh, this is a thing they do. They name each episode after some kind of thing that they think is going to be important in that episode, uh, usually done through a sort of a medical jargon, scientific jargon. So, like, the second episode is called EMDR so for Eye Movement Desensita- uh, Desensitization and Reprocessing which is a kind of psychotherapy that gets used for PTSD. It's, I guess, slightly controversial. Debatably successful, that kind of thing. 
Uh, and this is, I think, just indicates because we've got this new therapist coming in, he's going to try all sorts of weird stuff to try and see what works to uh, help Taro. We get episodes later on like uh, thought field therapy and uh, homeostatic synchronization. <laughs> so for episode two, we get a bit more of the revealing of the timeline of the kidnapping incident, but not so much by Taro, but through Masayuki and uh, the researches uh, he's been doing into it. But the first thing I kind of want to say about the episode is how it starts. And it starts actually kind of in the same way with these sorts of dreamlike states, but rather than it being the out-of-body experience that we had at the start of the first episode, we've went more for like a nostalgic childhood dream um, sequence, uh, which is sort of like nicely done visually through the use of a sort of a muted sort of watercolory palette. It's both noticeably uh, brighter and more faded than the rest of the show. Mm. And uh, prior to that, I don't think Ian's version had that, but mine and uh, Freya's definitely did, is we have a bunch of clips from the previous episode. Yes, a silent recap, if you will. Yes, silent recapping, which is a very interesting choice where it just relies on its visual and um, character expressions to get the mood across. And some of the the ambient noise. Yeah, some ambient noise, but no actual um, spoken dialogue. And it was a thing in episode three as well, so I'm assuming it's a thing for every episode. Mm-hmm. It just shows how confident they are. And yeah, we so we get like Taro going to school, and one of and like continuing this theme of like the Saki perhaps not doing everything so well as he leaves to go to school. There's like bicycle helmet. Um, his mother and father are talking to like the person who sells them their. Um, and like they, none of them look particularly happy. They're discussing brown rice versus white. And one thing we can see with the mother uh, is that she has like a sort of a noticeable tick with her eyes. Mm. Um, we also learn that she takes heavy medication to not dream during the night. That was in episode three, but yeah. God damn it. For some reason, I find it very difficult to keep the episodes, the events of these three episodes in proper order. Like, I, I actually kind of understand why you might think that, because... Yeah. In any sort of a show that relies heavily on flashbacks and dream sequences, there's a, like an inevitable non-linearity that makes it a bit harder to keep track. So yeah, Masayuki comes in uh, to where Taro is in the library. He's on like one of the classic sort of uh, beige computers, uh, and he's been doing some searching about the out-of-body experiences. And Masayuki comes in like an asshole and wants to know everything about him. He's just like. Ah uh, yes, I know all about what happened to to your in your kidnapping case all these years ago. We should totally be friends. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he doesn't say that, but like, more or less, right? I mean, most of his dialogue seems to be like uh, designed to be as provocative as possible. And we even like catch him like spying on like the like browsing history of Taro and. Like confirming that he's checking out on these um, out of body experiences and like ways to deal with the trauma. And then this is actually, I think, where we get most of the information after this. While everyone in the class is like chatting and doing whatever, we get like sort of a narrator, uh, narrator like dialogue over it, kind of explaining stuff with like heavy flashbacks and like news cutting and all that sort of jazz. And if anything, I would say that's kind of like the theme for like the next 10, uh, maybe eh, not even 10 minutes, but for the next while, we see a lot of like just the, the regular school scenes cutting back and forth between shots of what has happened to try and fill in the details for you. Hmm. Yeah. We see like Taro go off to the, uh, the shrine where he saw Miyako uh, in his out of body experience the previous day. Yeah, that's the episode uh, two turning point. But to get there, he needs to move through the woods. And uh, uh, this doesn't is... he get there and then walk off into the woods? Yes. And this and this is where we get like the next experience. It's like we think it's him walking through. He's uh, and then we get all the weird spooky shit happening, <laughs> like the 
a girl with the black hair who looks like a Japanese doll into some sort of ghost thing. And then as he runs away, he, if anything, sort of like runs through himself is kind of how it works. Yes. We also once again see the giant we saw in episode one, like the black giant that was used as a stand-in for the kidnapper he doesn't remember. I think I think we would sort of describe it as he's probably not... I, I think this is actually where we get to see like a, like a different side of his character. He's actually... Uh, Taro is actually like kind of childish and sort of almost like generic anime protagonist. And he's got the like exaggerated pouting and stuff when he tries to get information out of Miyako and she's just like sad. <laughs> uh, and he's like, visibly frustrated by it. She's like, she saw me, damn it. <laughs> I actually like because uh, I don't know, it felt more like a uh it, it it is like generic anime protagonist, but it felt more like a flaw, uh, like a realistic flaw in this case. Just I mean, he is only 14. Well, yeah. like, like I say, I, I would generally criticize it because I feel that the way it's often done is it's an exaggerated feature of someone's personality done for like yes. maybe comedic effect or it just seems to be a thing that happens uh, in like, because it, it happens in like Japanese dramas and you see Japanese celebrities do uh, mostly like of the sort of younger female. Mm. Uh, whereas for him, yes, it comes out a bit more naturally, but it's not too exaggerated. And, well, yeah, he's a teenager. Yeah. I actually think this is also where, I think it's in this episode where we learn one of what I find to be one of the most interesting things about Taro is namely that what we learned that he, some of his memories are missing, which only makes sense, but that he's deliberately searching and trying to confront whatever it is that is missing to figure out what happened rather mm. than trying to bury it further. Like that evidence is the kind of strength he has. Yeah. yeah, totally. And they convey this visually as well. Like there's certain like camera tricks that uh, they're using to indicate certain things. We see like a lot of things are blurred out in particular. There's like all these sort of like grainy filters and stuff. And yeah, like there's only like a few things that we're meaning in that we get like a little bit of Masayuki chatting with one of their other classmates about all the weird shit that's happening uh, or has happened uh, rather and we get like a little sneak peek as to what the deal is with Makoto uh, when we see him playing his guitar so overall the second episode is mostly a bit about filling us in with uh on like the key context we need to know at least for uh, just, Tara's trauma. Which is, yeah. uh, it's just, I, I prefer it when shows do this where the first episode is more hooking style or whatever and then the second episode explains the context, at least somewhat. I don't think we really see a lot of Masayuki this episode. He mostly just uh, spends his time in the background and keeps digging into the into the past but we do get a hint at his trauma uh, in this episode where he has a conversation with another student from the school on top of a bridge and he looks quite fearful when he looks down for a second so we can uh, immediately learn that he has a trauma of, a fear of heights somewhere although we don't mm -hmm. know why yet he also commits microaggressions constantly yes <laughs> like he's it's weird because he's clearly not set up as to be like the most like, ooh, this guy's dangerous character. That's Makoto. But he's just he's just kind of like uh I don't want to call him an asshole, but he's definitely like yeah. oblivious as to how his actions affect other people. It's hard to tell if he's oblivious or if he's yeah. just an asshole. Like for me what his character design scream is he's the rich young son of a well-off family who uses his money to buy stuff and is going to get punched in the face sooner or later which the third episode seems to confirm somewhat. Yes. Yeah, I, I guess it's up to you as a person willing to like give the more charitable interpretation which is I would definitely not give a charitable interpretation. Or no. if you're going to do the he's uh, deliberately pushing people's buttons. I mean uh, I, I think he's an asshole. Does it mean I'm not sympathetic to him? Yeah, but he's definitely pushing buttons on purpose. I mean, just his, the shit he has on pretty much every yes. scene. We just turn his head and goes, hmm. Like, he, he knows what he's doing. 
yeah, so like with that, maybe we should like talk a little bit about the third episode. That one actually starts off with Makoto. Um, the little clip we saw at the end of the the second episode really gets expanded here. Uh, with like instead of just like the like four or five seconds or whatever, we get like a few minutes, like maybe like as much as two minutes of him like just plugging in his his guitar into the amp, putting on his earphones, doing some. <laughs> teenage guitar noodling. Some licks. Uh, <laughs> like, definitely not the most tuneful at times, but, like, not un- not unproficient. It sounds it. like an amateur. Uh, with his weird penis guitar. <laughs> yes, his guitar does look a bit strange. It's supposed to be, like, your generic flying V guitar, but, like, the proportions are awkward, and the shadow doesn't make it look more less phallic. But you were yes. saying you were quite impressed by the finger movements? Yeah, one of the things I like I noticed is that like they did actually seem to give like a reasonable attempt conveying him playing the things that he should be playing. Like he bends the str- like his his animation bends the strings when the sound of this of the strings bends, the notes change at the right time. And then we, we we follow up with a weird scene where for some reason Taro is at Masayuki's house. I do I do like that the VR segment looks like intentionally worse than the normal uh, flying scenes. Taro is trying out Masayuki's headset, which he uses for exposure therapy, which is also the ti- uh, the title of the episode Phobia Exposure. But I just want to say that I find it very odd that Taro. Having known Masayuki for two days, where he's mostly been a creepy asshole, decide, would decide to go home with him. But I guess if you live in the boonies, somebody coming out and saying, look, I've got a VR headset, that would be probably a pretty good reason for you to go yes. with him. Also, Taro doesn't seem like he has any friends, so... Uh, That's true. I don't know. Uh, if I was in this situation, I'm not sure if I would go, but uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like I would have punched Masayuki by now. The CG thing was like really noticeable, because I think we said it was like, oh... These are some weird-looking CG trees, and then it's like, oh, all right, it's VR, okay. <laughs> like, my first thought was Dragon Quest for some reason, which is probably intentional. I don't know. <laughs> Somehow Masayuki has access to the Oculus dev kit from 2007. <laughs> yes. It's it's weird, because it says his father works for, like, a biotech company, so I assume that this is just, like, a cool toy he bought him rather than being something they develop. Well, apparently, uh, Kanaka mentioned in an interview that the theme of biotechnology is a really underlying and recurring theme of the story. Okay, I guess that's happened. So I guess that gets introduced here. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure it, it really materializes all that much otherwise in these first few episodes. Yeah, so he does manage to convince like Taro to go along to the hospital where he was held kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Like they're like they're gonna go later on, and um, they're gonna get their bikes and they're gonna go solve a mystery. We also see that Masayuki isn't just uh, doesn't just have vertigo, or it's more complicated. Yeah, it seems to be. Well, we see we see a <laughs> sort of red fla- red colored flashback of somebody standing in front of a chain link fence on a roof in a school. So if we know anything about anime, that means somebody probably jumped who was close to Masayuki, and he's traumatized because of that. We see him run up to the fence and then look through, and then he sees himself, and he has no eye uh, pupils or whatever. Yeah. He has no eyes, and he must Which, scream. I guess the implication there is that he's blaming himself for that happening. Um... So presumably his friend jumped off. Makoto and Masayuki and Taro all meet up at the shrine. Which I thought actually was going to indicate that all of the main characters were going to go on this, but I guess that was a, that would have been a bit too convenient, even for one uh, <laughs> of an early episode in a season. And oh boy, Makoto is pissed. <laughs> like they, it has they they mean it like the shrine is located on top of like one of these really long stone staircases you often see in anime, and Makoto threatens to throw Masayuki off. All the way back down and kill him. We see another side of Tara here, which is the like uh, sensitive, empathetic side, because he's specifically like, "Don't do that." He's scared of heights. Instead of "Don't throw it down there and kill him." 
And then, thankfully, uh, thankfully, uh, Miyako comes along and tells them all to fuck off. Yeah. Yes. Then there's some wandering through the woods down towards the uh, down towards the hospital, and we get a lot of like weird uh, camera on the street type deal uh, going on with like talking with various people in the school. This is presumably all done from Masayuki's point of view, um, yes. with like, well, I heard that there's some stuff going on at the dam. Uh, <laughs> there's, they have a dungeon down there. <sighs> Something about the curse. Someone, yeah, someone went into the secret room and died. That sort of it. Like, I clear, clearly, like he's been going around, like sort of bribing people in for information. That was one of the things we saw at the in the end of the second episode. Yeah, he gave, well, he is, he is. So that that just further reinforced the idea that he's rich. Um, mm-hmm. and Taro is having problems because he keeps seeing the supernatural stuff around. Mm-hmm. The episode ends once the three boys arrive outside the hospital, which is usually for most of the year because it's uh, built in a region that was flooded after a dam was built. Most of the time it's underwater, but now it's on it one of the seasons. very well for, yes, for, that, for being underwater. But now it's uh, exposed. So they arrive in front of the hospital and it turns out that Masayuki's trauma is, as he states, it's that he's killed somebody. So... Yes. Presumably that means presumably that's just meant with that he feels guilty about the person who died. Or maybe he did kill them. We don't know. Maybe maybe he did directly kill them. Maybe he did directly maybe he's a serial killer and that would be a twist. It would be kind of dumb. It would be kind of dumb, yeah. But I'm still I'm still kind of impressed by how willing Taro is just within the first three episodes of actually going back to the place where his sister died and he was kidnapped and held for several days. Whereas, yes, I feel like most normal anime protagonists would need a lot of coaxing or convincing before they would choose to go back to the place of their trauma. But here, he does it willingly within the first few three episodes. You can uh, just to back up a slight bit. You could actually reasonably make the inference that he is is actually responsible for the student's death based on like the message that the student left on the black, yeah, uh, which was cursing him. That's true. Um, and like he sort of like it's maybe he didn't like make them kill themselves by like pushing them, but like if you make someone like I mean if you make someone feel so bad about their thing and then yes. don't stop them, you basically did it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean I did I did say his character design makes him seem like a rich young asshole, so maybe he was a, a massive bully who uh, bullied the kid till he committed suicide, and mm-hmm. that would that would be certainly a reason for his trauma, or he was a friend who just. Which is a thing you very often see in manga when you do bullying stories. It's the friend who doesn't speak up for you anymore, and then they meet years later, and then something happens. Yeah. So that was the first episode of Ghost Hunt, and I think it's fair to say we're all very impressed. Yes. Before we move on, I would just like to point out that there is a character in the cast called Snark. Okay. (laughs) Shout out to Snark. Well, I think we already talked a lot about the themes of the show, and I think what I we should we we'll probably spend a lot of time, we could talk about now is the actual filming uh, visuals and, of course, the soundscape of the show. And yeah. I just like to start off by saying that I was very impressed with the cinematography, uh, which I mentioned as we were watching it, and that as Freya said, it uses a lot of slow takes, but it also uses a lot of. Um, characters just kind of floating where the camera where we don't see them moving up and down but they just move left to right or forward and back mm. and um, the show really manages to evoke an ethereal and ghostly atmosphere to through its use of um, camera movement as well also i was very impressed by its use of cg and um, camera movement in a 3d space which is often an issue for anime to do it well. Especially given that this was a show from... Well, it was announced in 2007. And, uh, yeah, we'd have had its run. It was, yeah, October 20, 2007. Uh, pr- production IG have always had a decent CG for whatever time. Like, I, I remember when I was watching Kimetsu no Yaiba uh, this year, and I, we were both, me and Ian were both very impressed with how they handled the CG in that and the... Mm. The free camera movement in the sp- in the space in the woods, but 
they did it pretty damn well here um, 12 years ago. Yes. One of the things that I pointed out that is um, it uses certain visual cues to indicate uh, certain experiences. Like when he's having the out-of-body experience, we usually have the, do you want to say, like, call it like a fisheye lens type uh, look to it, where like all around the edges it's very blurry. Yeah. When it's a nostalgic thing it's trying to invoke, well, maybe not nostalgic, nostalgia is the wrong type of word, but definitely like something that's meant memory. as like a more positive memory. We go for the brighter watercolor look. It's kind of a very muted palette a lot of the time, um, but there's a good choice of like visual filters, um, which like which we've seen from like uh, Nakamura in other show shows, right? Yeah. Like like Kino has the sort of VHS scanline filter. <laughs> yes. Uh, when you arrives at the school, everything's just sort of like brighter, as if just like it's. Like been got like just we've got like floodlights uh, <laughs> filling the place with just the, the, this bright white bright light. Mm. I mean, the thing is, the school light isn't like a it's not like a warm bright light. It's like a harsh, well, kind of harsh well, bright light. Yeah, the um the memory scenes that come at the hospital are all this sort of like sea green color, with um like the 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 images we see of him and his sister. They already look like cor- I mean, his sister would be at this point, but he also yeah. looks like one. And like I say, it kind of has this sort of like undersea um, yeah. quality to it. They're trapped. Also, we get some lovely close-ups of uh, anatomically accurate flies. <laughs> I really appreciate the flies. <laughs> yes. uh... Also, I want to shout out that scene where he was uh, on his bike. I can't remember where he was going. I think he was just going home and like it was a very low angle looking up. At the uh, surrounding mountains. At the beginning of the second episode. Yes, and it just made him feel very small. You see similar things, like when they're going towards uh, the turtle rock, and you get the shot from like behind the rock that's sort of like framing them. Like sometimes there's, uh, sometimes we get to an anime. What can we say about the direction? It was fine. Yes. Whereas, like we don't, we don't always want fine. We want people to like specifically think about what techniques and what like. What things make the most sense for telling the story? It's not necessarily about an accurate conveyance of like movement. It's not about catching every instance of movement. We do get like talking from off camera, uh, which is like even in like live action cinema, kind of uncommon. <laughs> yes. Um, and like all I say, I think the way they use different visual cues to tell you like. Is this a memory? Is this a flashback? Is this like, um, is this like research that Masayuki's done that comes across as like the, the sort of like, no, no, with uh, Masayuki, we get the sort of like the, like fast forwarding through a, a recording yes, uh, so. view. Uh, with the, with the, um, you know, that thing you would often get on like old like tape reels where like you can see the black uh, line going between yeah. the two frames. If it goes out of sync, that sort of a deal. One last thing, I love how uh, weirdly spacious yet claustrophobic their house feels. <laughs> <laughs> Every room seems way bigger than it uh, should. Yeah, like Denny, when we were watching it, explicitly pointed out how big the corridor felt. <laughs> yes. Like I think the visuals we can all agree were great, but. Even more so than that was the actual sound design of the show, as we said several times in this recording so far. Um, I would say that it just manages to convey a great sense of unease and that there's something just off. It mostly does so through static noises, such as when the fly is rubbing its uh, legs together. It doesn't make a rubbing sound, but it makes an almost static kind of yeah. or a hissing sound. It, it uses the classical... Uh, technique of using um, non-diegetic sounds, sounds that don't belong to the motion or action that's being made yes. uh, in order to convey the atmosphere better. It's something that uh, happened in Lane quite a lot too. There's a lot of um, weird radio noises in this. Yes, yes. We, we do see Tara fiddling with a uh, some sort of transistor which 
seems to be a very common thing for anime protagonists to fiddle with transistors or radios. Is it? I don't know. It, it just feels like something that I've seen a lot of protagonists do. Okay. I have a feeling that it's just because of... Um, I mean, at this point, it's probably a holdover, but like in older shows, it would have been because that's the sort of thing like audiovisual geeks did yes. uh, as children. And so a lot of the people who worked in television would have been the people who made transistor radios in their spirit. There's just some. There's just a lot of great stuff about the soundscape, but there's not really much we can say about it. It's meant to be listened to. Yes. Do we want to talk about the supernatural things at all? I don't know because I feel like they've not really been a big part of the show so far. We've seen some supernatural things, but. At this yeah. point, they could still be explained with, oh, there's drugs in the water. Like, this mm-hmm. probably could still be solved by a Scooby-Doo guy. So. Uh, well, I was going to say they're, um, they're ambiguous enough that they could just not be there at all, and it's just hit manifestations of trauma. Presumably, from what we see in the opening, they'll be actually there later because we see people physically interacting with the ghosts or whatever they are. I do like the uh, the weird black skinny giant as a representation of the kidnapper, but I do wish they hadn't had the scene where his face shows up on top of it. Yeah. Um... Also, this is a weird anecdote, but it looks like um, <laughs> in Second Life, uh, some of the, the skins are made by having body parts as separate clothes, for example, and if you take them all off, you end up having a really tall, skinny monstrosity. <laughs> but yeah, the technique of um, actually using the sort of supernatural as like a manifestation of the internal trauma is like a is like a very common fantasy slash horror trope, and I don't hate it. <laughs> yes. No. No. But I definitely don't think that's what this show is going for. Like, I mean, it's much better if you can physically fight your demons, right? <laughs> you gotta punch that cancer away, Ian. I mean, I think it could be going for it while they're also being more explicit. They're just straight-up supernatural creatures. Yeah, I, I think in this case, they're, it's definitely trying to... I, th- I think, it, I think it's, 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 it's trying to like thread that line between, like, like do, do you want to punch your trauma away in the form of this black giant? Or do you just want to um, like use the um, out-of-body experiences? as like an explanation of how like he as how, how he tries to cope with his trauma by not really thinking about it and just you trying want to, to accept it. that you're always going to have it and move on um but yeah we definitely don't really we haven't seen the titular ghost hound really um except in the opening do you want to talk about the opening eh, i think it was fine like i didn't think it was that great or anything i like i like the song person uh, I also like the ending shot where they have the three of them uh, like come out the front of the school and then they're not looking at each other. Oh yeah, that was good. That was yeah. Good. Like I thought it was like a reasonably strong visually opening. Like the 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 music was good. Um, the only thing is, I definitely there was like too much of like a of like the ingrained anime. We need to show tons of different shots of the main character yes. when. They could have really just kept going with some of these, especially because it causes color palette changes uh, at some points. I also, uh, it also does the thing where it's like showing shots that are presumably from later in this series, which is, yeah, it's whatever. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, they did at least avoid like one of the common problems, which is the here is every character in the anime showed in the opening. Yes. Uh, and yes. they did make sure to only really focus on the people who are actually our protagonists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So I think with that, we've mostly covered our, the majority of things we want to say. So before we move into our verdict, it's time for this week's trivia corner. This week, I've got two pieces of trivia for you. One, Ghost Town has a DS game based on it. Never came to the West because why would a DS visual novel come to the West? God damn it, Japan. And secondly, uh, when Kunaka is asked about uh, Ghost Hound, 
he he says that he gen- usually jokes about it being an anti-Harry Potter story. Very interesting, <laughs> now that I know the fact that the protagonist of the show is voiced by the Japanese equivalent of Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, it, not only that, um, but Mikako uh, is the voice of Harry Potter in PlayStation 1. <laughs> God damn it. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure how I take that that joking response, but uh, I'd be very interested to hear him explain it in more detail. Uh, so, Just, if you ever meet him, ask him, Mr. Kanaka, why is Ghost Town an anti-Harry Potter story? And then get him to come on, and then get him to come on this show, because me and Freya would really like to talk to him. Yes. Yes. It's a, it's, it's a story where the uh, main character had a traumatic event in his uh, past, but he deals with it realistically instead of the way Harry does. <laughs> Which is never. Yes. I mean, to be fair, he was a babe. Well, I guess, I guess in his case, they're trying to be living for. Um, how old is Harry again when he gets the letter? Uh, eleven. Eleven, living for eleven years with a severely abusive father. But um... hopefully, it's also because Ghost Hound is not a uh, slavery apologist story. So I guess the so I guess the only thing to um, to do is to say, well, how many flashbacks do we want to give them? <laughs> Out of five. Oh, we didn't even talk about the flashbacks. I thought there were a few too many. So the, how, how many flashbacks are you willing to give it, then? Out of what? Out, Out of five. five. Yeah. Uh, four, four and a half. Mm-hmm. Okay, Denny. Would you watch more of us? Or of I course. presume you've already... Have you already seen all of us? No, I haven't. All right. uh, me, I'd, I'd actually agree with Freya. Four to four and a half. I thought it was a very solid three strong opening episode and in, as we've said a slow burn but with more than enough intrigue distinct characters and a great soundscape and cinematography to keep me coming back for more. I mean I'll be honest this is like uh my this show is like my shit. If it had uh, gay people in it as well it would be perfect <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> like it I think it ticks pretty much the majority of your boxes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. We we need like the gay ice skating or the tanks or <laughs> or them to sit around and just talk about chocolate cornet for one episode for me to really put out five stars. I wonder. Uh, I wonder if we could make an um, if if we could create an anime that would tick every single one of our boxes combined. Yes. And what that show would be. I'm pretty sure we can. But for me, I th- I definitely think that uh, I'm willing to just say four and a half yeah. flashbacks out of five. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I don't know why I said four to four and a half, because it's definitely four and a half. So, I think that means we're all very happy with Ghost Town. Good Holy job, shit. Nakamura and, uh, and Kanaka. Oh, we found one that we all wanted to continue watching. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm unlikely to, go, uh, to be doing so, but I wouldn't mind. Are any of you going to continue actually watching it? Yes, I'm not sure when. Mm. Ian? Like, probably, right? Like, this has actually been on my list for a long time. The fact that it's yeah. taken me this long actually makes me a little disappointed. Yeah. Yes. All right. Next week, it's my choice this time. And I think I've got something very interesting picked out. We're going back. We're going back to the past. And next week, we're going to be watching the first three episodes of The Rose of Versailles. Oh. Well, actually, that's actually a good choice. Nice. I like that. Good night, everybody.